And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. A little mood music to get us going for this hour. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker uh, of sorts. Uh, this one is a pre-recorded edition. Good to have all of you here with me. This is Jason Hunt. I am the editor at Sci-Fi For Me, and uh, happy to have all of you with us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Those of you who are listening to us as a podcast, uh, you are always welcome to join us over on the live video side of things. We're on YouTube, Odyssey, and uh, Rum. Uh, no, YouTube, Odyssey, and Facebook. We don't uh, we don't stream live to Rumble yet, but we're working on that. So uh, the little the little mood music uh, it is coming up. We've got Halloween just around the corner, and coming up in Los Angeles over the weekend, we have a performance of Frankenstein with a live orchestra. Now this is uh, similar to a lot of the different other uh, things that we've seen before. You know, The Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars. We've seen all of these things. Back to the Future where you have the movie, and this is the 1931 film uh, directed by uh, James Whale and uh, starring Boris Karloff, and it's being performed with a live orchestra with the score by our guest. Mr. Michael Shapiro joins us to talk about his music, which is original composition for Frankenstein. Welcome to the program, sir. Great to see you. So... In in my research, I'm looking at the notes. the The film, the, as it was released in 1931, as I understand it here, did not have a musical score. And I'm looking at the the IMDb credits, and it lists someone here named uh, Bernard Kahn as mm. music. Now, so I'm let's let's clear this up a little bit first. Did did the movie have music at any point? Originally, only music that was filmed as part of the film, and the beginning credits and the end credits. The composer you mentioned, who I think was Austrian in background, wrote the music, which was stock music for the credits. He did not write a through composed film score because sci fi fans, 1933 King Kong, first through composed film score first time um, and it they did not have the technology yet or the concern or the attention to adding a second sound track on the celluloid mm -hmm. they just had the one soundtrack for the talking as they filmed they were connecting to the sprockets you know that one track right. by 33 when the first through composed film score of, of King Kong was done, that started it. And then directors were able to figure out, well, we need to spot our films with a musician, with a composer to write music because Lennon Malton in his book on cinema said that the original Frankenstein, although a masterpiece, which it is, is creaky. <laughs> now why? Because Illustration. You all know Star Wars, and you all know the end scene, the throne scene, you know, where they, oh, everybody's right. happy. They, they've beaten 
the, the dark forces and blah, blah, blah. And on the YouTube, there is a comparison of the throne scene without music and with John Williams' music. Seen You've probably that. seen it. Yeah, yeah. It is revelatory. So directors have realized that the use of music as an underscoring can change the import of a scene, can make it so much more dramatic and so much more meaningful. I had the great fortune of having this uh, done in collaboration with a new theater that opened up in northern Westchester, where I live in New York, north, north of New York City. Uh, the Film Society of Lincoln Center went into partnership with a new theater in Pleasantville called the Jacob Burns Film Center, which has become a place where Spielberg and Ang Lee and the late Jonathan Demme and many other people do first runs of their films and go and talk about them in the theater. And um, we did a collaboration in the first year of the Jacob Burns Film Center in 2002 of Frankenstein, 1931, with a live orchestra. And it was the first performance of Frankenstein, the movie Score. Since that time, three versions have given birth. The original 15-player, a full orchestra version with massive amounts of strings and brass and percussion and winds, which I recorded the overture with the City of Birmingham Symphony in the UK, which is on, on all the platforms. And now, in Los Angeles, the world premiere this weekend of Frankenstein, the movie Opera, which they are calling Frankenstein with live orchestra. That's much better than Frankenstein with dead orchestra. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it also is Frankenstein with live singers. The, the, the LA Opera has a wonderful young artist program. And I am working with six of the most wonderful singers imaginable. And um, they are just great. And oh my heavens, Tiffany, Madeline, Sarah, Ashley, Ryan, and Alan, these are the stars of today and tomorrow, and they're just wonderful. So we've been rehearsing all week and with the orchestra yesterday, the LA Opera Orchestra. We have our dress tomorrow, and then we go on live at the Ace Theater. Now, now are are you are you making radical adjustments for the operatic version or are you building on what you've already done because you know you mentioned John Williams he takes you know themes and and elements and and uses them over and over again and, and rebuilds on that yeah. is this a completely original overhaul of the whole thing or you're just no. adding pieces no what i added was the vocal lines okay. line solo duet trio ensemble above the 15-play version I had already written. Here's the rub, though. As you all remember, Frankenstein, the 1931 talking film, starts with a burial scene after the opening credits, which followed, by the way, Edward Van Sloan saying, Mr. Carl Lemley feels, and he warns everybody that, you know, if, if you're going to be too scared, you should leave. I warned you. <laughs> <laughs> then the opening credits start, and then there's a burial scene. And a priest is intoning these words. Et lux perpetuate, amen. Which is kind of a, an abbreviation of some words from 
the Latin Requiem Mass. Wait a minute. What are you doing here? Let's talk about this. There's an opportunity there. Huge opportunity. Yeah. So when I was thinking of working with the LA Opera, I spoke to the folks here, and we were thinking of a libretto, and what am I going to use for words? Because I don't have singers, right? So I say, am I going to use a new English libretto? I spoke to a very well-known friend of mine who's a librettist, great librettist, and we were playing with ideas. It just didn't sit with me, doing an English libretto. Because you've got English, very proper British English on stage. James Whale, Brit. Yeah. Colin Clive, Brit. Boris Karloff, born Pratt in the UK, in, in, when it was England. You know, very proper British show, right? So I said, I'm not going to have my singers with American English or whatever. You know, it's alive, it's alive. And then they go, it's alive, it's alive. That doesn't work. <laughs> right. But how about when it's alive, it's alive, they start singing Dies Irae, Dies Ila day of wrath so i found when i looked at the words of the latin requiem mass which i know deeply well because i've conducted the verity requiem and the mozart requiem and all these pieces as a professional conductor i said wow there's so much in the latin requiem mass that works for example there's a scene after they dig up the coffin for their fresh parts mm -hmm. in the first scene they need more parts what do they need they need, a brain. they need a brain. So what do they do? They put the coffin on a cart and they're pulling it up a hill. At its top of the hill, very dramatic, is a hanging man who they're going to cut down and hopefully take his brain. And as they're taking the cart up the hill, and in Frankenstein, the movie score, I have these wonderful chords in the orchestra going, an ascending scale. So there's your answer. But how do you underscore a movie? I'll get back to that in a second. So in the Latin Requiem Mass version, they're singing, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. What is the Latin Requiem Mass about? It's about resurrection. Here we have a Black Sabbath kind of res resurrection <laughs> where you have Dr. Henry Frankenstein, this genius. Now I know what it feels like to be God, creating a monster from dead parts. But here's the rub. Boris Karloff, in his breakout role, did something with the direction of James Whale, which is unprecedented. He made the monster someone we care about. The monster has soul. Yeah. How did Henry Frankenstein do that? How does the monster have soul? What he does in this film. He's vengeful. He's protective. He fights off people trying to, <clears throat> you know, destroy him, as Dr. Waldman tries unsuccessfully. He feels horrible about doing something to a seven-year-old, which hopefully, you know, if you remember the lake scene. Yeah. But it all works. What do I do for the, for the seven-year-old in the lake scene? And I'll tell a very funny story about Marilyn Walters, who played that role. I have the soprano who is Tiffany Townsend, a genius singer, singing Agnus Dei Peccata Mundi, Lamb of God, which is right out of the Mass. And that little girl is the Lamb of God. There's so many examples. The Latin Requiem Mass is perfect. So that's what we are doing here. 
we are resurrecting a monster from his dead parts and then he's going to have soul and we're doing it all with the totally immortal words i couldn't improve them anyway of the latin requiem mass has has there been any um, more unusual application of the mass <laughs> other than this form i mean this is not not what you would typically associate yeah, and 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 yeah. you know, as you're sitting here and going through this this idea of the, the you know the idea of resurrection and that sort of thing, I can see the themes there. And it's interesting that this that this music just really connects into that and reinforces that. I mean, we talked about John Williams earlier. He said, you know, one of the things that he does is, you know, if if you listen to the score, uh, especially of a Star Wars film, you should be able to follow the story. Without the story, you know, you follow the story with the with the music, and it sounds it sounds like that's kind of the same approach that you're you're doing here. Is the the story as it plays out on screen also plays out with the with the music that you're adding? First thing is, John comes from a background of working in Hollywood. He he's ninety one now. He started in nineteen fifty two. That's how long he's doing it, and. He comes from that world of yeah. TV first. He did a gazillion TV shows before he did Jaws. I mean, gazillion. I come from symphonic and operatic world. Chamber music, choral music, song cycles, solo piano pieces, so forth, solo violin pieces. So I'm a symphonic operatic composer coming to this score from that way. So I view Frankenstein the 1931 movie as its own opera, its own musical, its own musical show. I'm a Broadway person too. I grew up in New York, you know, went to the Met, the old Met, the new Met, you know, I, I worked in the Zurich opera. I'm, I'm a, a stage guy. Right. So I understand movement. So for example, you and I did not meet until a few minutes ago, but now we're compadres in the love of sci-fi films and film and so forth. So the music, when we first met, would have been very formal sure because we don't know each other now we know each other so if i see you you know three months from now talking about something else our music will be different our music's different right now now we're stationary we're sitting we're not moving around and we're talking direct but let's say we're talking about a scene in frankenstein when the monster is lumbering across when he first enters backwards into the laboratory mm -hmm. Dr. Frankenstein with his teacher, Dr. Waldman there. In that famous scene where he backs into the, he doesn't come through the entrance face first, he comes in with the back of his head and then he turns around. And in 1931, 13 year old Sam Shapiro, my father, went to the Brooklyn Paramount Theater, paid a, a nickel to get into the movies. Mm. <laughs> Those were the days, right? Right. And when I saw Frankenstein in the 60s as a little, little boy, he walked in and watched my brother and I watching it on a million dollar movie in New York, WOR Channel 9. And he said, what are you doing? Put, turn that off. Why would we like this movie, Daddy? <laughs> turn it off. You're going to have a nightmare. I didn't sleep for a week. Oh, wow. But he recounted that scene when the monster comes through the door with the back of the head. And then he turns around and faces the audience they screamed their heads off. 
in in the theater. And it was packed in those days, you know, no TV, just radio. Right. People went to movie theaters almost every day. So that monster's head comes in and then he turns around. And then James Will takes the camera and he goes right into the head. Genius photography, genius drama. Yeah, it's a great reveal. So what do you do when you're writing a score to a film that the director passed away tragically in a pool in Hollywood in the 50s? You've seen Gods and Monsters. I'm sure you've seen that film. Yep. Ian McKellen, right? How do you do it? I mean, when I do a film now or a documentary or whatever, I spot the movie with the director. Oh, I need music here. Now, what are you looking for here? We talk about here, you know, so forth. Sure. Okay. That being said. You can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah. But again, I'm an opera composer. I'm a dramatic composer. So I watched it and then I said, how can I move the people in the film? Fixed people, they're not changing. How can I move them across the scene? I had a conversation one, once with Steve Sondheim, which was very interesting. When I was young, I sent him some of my songs, which he really loved. And he sent me back a lovely, lovely note. And he said, I cannot imagine writing songs that don't have a dramatic context. Think about that. These are art songs. So they're just in one world taking a poem and setting it for that poem. But they're not part of a drama. They're not part of Sweeney Todd, you know, yeah. Into the Woods. So Stephen, in his own memory, in his own world, which he got from uh, Oscar Hammerstein, he could feel how to project a scene. I feel you, Joanna. You remember in, in, in Sweeney Todd, Tim Burton's film and the stage play? You know, he could feel the movement of the character but when Sweeney is singing that song before he, you know, he makes <laughs> meat pies. <laughs> He's, Stephen could conceive of it in that setting. So it, it taught me something to remember that when I write dramatic music, that's for the stage of the film, it's got to portray what's going on dramatically. So you have to pay attention to that. And you got to produce music that that accomplishes it. Yeah, it's got to reinforce the emotions of the scene, and and those emotions are different for each character because all of their needs and desires are different, and you know their motivations are different. So you've got that conflict that you got to put into the music as well. Absolutely, and that's what I look. Sci-fi movies. It's interesting. We should talk about them. And if there are any sci-fi directors out there watching this, please call me because there is an <laughs> issue. Here's your issue. Some sci-fi movies are made, and I, my daughter is watches these things all the time. She's an expert in them. She's a big, big, big fan of sci-fi films and thriller films. And a lot of them are go to cliche effects, meaning that for scary scenes, the music is deep, dark and, and right. kind of sounding. Yeah. But it doesn't go anywhere. So if we think of, you know, uh, the, the terrible slash movies, which I can't watch, but, you know, Freddy Krueger or Jason or any of these characters, the music can be shocking and at one point to like shock the audience to have them jump. Yeah. But there's no character development. And therefore, the films are not like Frankenstein in the American Film Institute top 100 films of all time. Because there's no character development. 
we love story, but you know we love you know what we love more. We love character development. We really do. You have to have both. Right. Harmony is harmony is kind of character development. Melody is kind of story, and together they they make a complete artistic work. Well, and that's the best way that you can have your audience, you know, connect with your with your specific characters, is to give them that depth. And you know, the music adds an additional layer to that. And you're right. Yeah. There there are a lot of there are a lot of films and television shows. I'll sit there and I'll watch it, and the music just isn't significant and it's i'm i'm looking at the music doesn't do anything for me and that's a that's a negative for me because i've been i've been a performer I've, i i used to play the trumpet and and did a little dabbling in composition back in high school and college right. so i i sit there and i i will listen to the musical scores and you know that's one of the things that was so disappointing about Man of Steel is is Hans Zimmer has this tremendous opportunity to give us a brand new Superman score, and doesn't deliver at least in my in my view. He delivered in Gladiator big time. You know, I, I think some guys also have studios in which they have a team working on pieces, although their name is there. Right. It's actually a t team, and they kind of do some super editing. Here's the thing. Um, you really need to study the drama really closely. Mm -hmm. And here's the trick that's happened. My score, Frankenstein, the movie score, and now the Frankenstein, the movie opera, is the number one film, uh, film live fi to, 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 to film score in the world. It, this is going to be the 60th performance of one of the versions here at the LA Opera. And uh, I get unsolicited requests, about a dozen a year for it worldwide. Now, here's the crazy part. When people come to see the, as they will at the LA Opera this Friday and Saturday, I'll come out after speaking to the audience a little bit about the piece and me, I will then conduct the overture, which, it happen, which is recorded by the City of Birmingham Symphony and so forth. And that's without film. Do the overture, three, four minutes, and the overture has a lot of the themes from the film. Then... Uh, Edward Van Sloan comes out, Mr. Kalemli feels, you know, from behind the curtain, he right. warns everybody, you should leave if you're going to be scared. I warned you. And then the film credits start. It looks perpetuate. So we've been through all this. My music starts. After about a minute or two minutes into the movie, and remember, I'm live on the stage with the singers in the LA Opera Orchestra. So I'm there physically with them. The film is from 1931 on a big screen in the Ace Theater. After two to three minutes, I've been told, the audience forgets we're there. Right. Think about that. That means we succeeded. And they're just watching the film and taking in the whole artistic experience. Yeah, total immersion at that point. Right. Perfectly said. So the immersion is what I seek in everything that I do instrumentally vocally combination dramatically symphonically total immersion so they don't think about the physical you know me conducting the orchestra in my second symphony they think only of the second symphony or my archangel piano concerto frankenstein the movie up it's all immersion and if i can immerse them and in the words of one critic who saw frankenstein and said that my music gets under people's skin 
then I succeed. It's true of new opera too. Same thing. So let me ask you, it, 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 with you coming from a, a stage and operatic and orchestral background rather than the Hollywood TV movie thing, because my original question was going to be whether whether you were drawing from, from influence like Korngold or, or, or Waxman, you know, that mm -hmm. group. But mm -hmm. you're actually pulling from even even further back. You know, I mean, you're you're talking about you know like uh, you know Mozart and Verdi and and that group. What what influences are you pulling in for the score that you did for this? Because now right, now so, now you've got a broader palette to paint with. Yeah, yeah. Look, I studied uh, counterpoint and ear training with conservatoire type people very high up, Juilliard and private class and so forth. I am not a Hollywood composer, although I love writing for film. It's one of our, you know, Shostakovich must have written 50 film scores. Erich Maria Korngold, who was a friend of my mentor, Karl Bamberger in Vienna, mm -hmm. came from an operatic symphonic background and only got here because Max Reinhardt pulled him over in the mid thirties to do a Midsummer Night's Dream starring Mickey Rooney as Puck. <laughs> it's a great film. And he, you know, he brought him over and then he went back, but then he brought him back to do Captain Blood and Robin Hood, not Max Reinhardt, but the studio, right. MGM. And that saved his life and his family. Between two worlds, if you've ever seen that movie, you know, that's, just, that's their story. I'm very influenced by Korngold very interested and influenced in a certain extent by Franz Waxman. It turns out that John Waxman, Franz Waxman's son, was my distributor for a long while of this film. <laughs> and he's a friend. And I've conducted many of the scores of Bernard Herrmann, Bernard Herrmann, Benny Herrmann, as they call them, yep. um, uh, Nino Rota and so forth, and John Williams and others uh, who uh, were rented, the scores were rented to me in parts by John Waxman, theme and variations. It's now been sold to a major house. But the point of the matter is, very influenced by them, and I love them. Uh, I love Elliot Goldenthal and the recent people. Uh, and Elliot comes from my kind of background. Um, uh, of course, John Williams, one of the great human beings and composers. I love watching his things and how varied he can do it. Yeah, you know, Catch me if you can. Remember that score? kind of jazzy versus the symphonic scores and all the great things he's done but you know now he wants to write concerti <laughs> <laughs> and conduct the berlin philharmonic and the vienna philharmonic which i don't blame him well he should have the adulation that he so deserves it's really not so much of a stretch for him to do a jazzy kind of score like that because of his background you know he started as a jazz musician you know he's a pianist right. for for so long so johnny williams johnny williams and, and you know you look at his his themes for Lost in Space, for example, mm -hmm. and they're kind of upbeat and kitschy and jazzy and have that influence in there as well. So, yeah, it's no surprise. But, yeah, it's not a surprise either that he would go and want to write the big orchestral, you know, concerti stuff as well, because his, you know, his his palette, I guess, is is so broad as well because of everything else that he's done. I mean. You know the the NBC News theme and the oh, Olympics all of us, and all Olympics, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Meet the so, press. Meet the press. Yeah. No. Look, look, they've done a good thing in, in enlisting him, but at his age right now, um, he's got to write his 
his concerti, I, which I, and he's written a lot of concerti. His bassoon concerto, to me, is the best of them. I love that piece. But getting back to writing film scores, I mean, there's a lost opportunity, I think, for some directors. I think they should use more of people who come perhaps outside the industry to a certain extent. There are exceptions. Um, I mean, Sharon Farber, who's a woman who works right here in L.A., is a magnificent composer and friend. Um, and there are others who really know their stuff. But you have to dig underneath. What's the drama telling you to do? Mm -hmm. It's like conducting. For example, conducting is not moving your hands and then the orchestra responds to what the music... <laughs> you know, it's right. the other way. Yeah. The music, the score, tells you how to move your hands. So you impart the particular... particular particular rat that the specificity of what you're trying to do <laughs> right so what i'm saying is the score will tell you how to move your hands and elicit what you think should be the intent of the composer not that your hands then it doesn't go the other way it's the same thing with writing a score to a film the film has to tell you how to write but then you have to write music that dramatizes and complements the characters and the drama happening at that very moment. And it's got to be done in such a way that's sneaky and gets under people's skin. And there are only a few scores that really accomplish that, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of at the moment and getting under people's skin, we're going to take a real quick break for uh, the Google interruption. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about Frankenstein with live orchestra uh, because I got a couple of specific questions on what happens next with this. And we'll get to that right after this. Don't go anywhere. Stand by. If you unsubscribe to our podcasts, our legion is doomed. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Hi, everyone. Jason Hunt here inviting you to join us every Saturday morning for news. The week's headlines in science fiction, fantasy, horror, comic books, video games, plus Comic-Con updates and the weather and the occasional interview along the way. We call it Good Morning Multiverse. We hope you join us every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central, right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV. The H2O Podcast, Monday night at 8, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back live from the bunker, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking music, and uh, we started with a little noir music, we've moved on some electronic, we've evolved our uh, our score as, uh, as the conversation has uh, continued. We are talking with Michael Shapiro, who is the composer and conductor for... Uh, it's it's an interesting concept. I mean, as many times as I've seen movies with live orchestra, now you've got Frankenstein with the live orchestra and opera performance uh, that's coming up this weekend. So let me let me ask you this um, because it's an it's a natural. I think I I think hopefully it's a natural uh, progression of thought. Mm -hmm. The Universal monster movies. Mm. There's been a lot of discussion of late about uh, you know reviving them. There's been a lot of interest 
And, you know, people talking about, you know, bringing Brendan Fraser back to do a mummy number four. And, you know, all, all of these different things. You know, people talked about the universal monster specifically. We keep getting action figures. And and the the Tom Cruise movie didn't quite go off that whole monster verse. So Universal is sitting there talking about going back to the drawing board with the original, you know, stuff. And then this comes along. And... M- the question that I have is whether or not there have been any conversations with Universal about distributing the 1931 film with your score. Like, like on a Blu-ray or DVD, has there been any talk about including your score as, a, as an optional track maybe on, on the movie itself? Well, we'll hope, hope we get there. Uh, right now, I'm official licensee uh, of Universal Pictures. I have a contract with Universal Pictures. Uh, in which we work together as partners in the uh, symphony orchestra or opera uh, versions with the film. Um, And I'm hoping that we can uh, get to the point where there will be such a a distribution. I know that Phil Phil Glass did a score for Dracula, which is a alternate version uh, on, was on DVD originally in Blu-ray and now maybe streaming. I don't know. But uh, no, it would be wonderful to have that done, certainly. I don't have that yet, but I'm sure it'll happen at some point. You talk about audiences getting lost and getting immersed and, and, and losing the fact that the orchestra is actually there in the space. Yeah. What kind of reaction have you gotten in, in the broad sense from maybe not necessarily industry people, but, you know, the reviews are out there. Everybody has very nice things to say about it. Has this led to conversations and opportunities for you that might not otherwise have shown up? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's amazing. I'm humbled by the fact, humble, but also very proud of the fact that this is now the number one score of its kind. Internationally, I'm talking Europe, UK, Canada, and United States. I mean, dozens and dozens of radio stations have now played the overture recorded by the one of the greatest orchestras in the world, City of Birmingham Symphony, which used to be Simon Rattle's orchestra for many years. Um, and it's been played, the overture's been played on Polsky radio, South African radio, Australian radio, all over Europe, BBC, CBC, and about 50 radio stations here. I've done a serious XM Symphony Hall broadcast <laughs> four times in the past year, um, two years. Um, I was just on, or I'm going to be on this week weekend, the host with Vincent Caruso, uh, Classics on Film, with my score. Second time, second straight year. And um, and you've been you know, having a lot of conversations and doing interviews about this particular performance that's coming up. So it's you- like a dozen, literally a dozen or more. It's crazy what's going on. All the local cable and TV stations and press and now, now this wonderful show, which I just love. I mean, oh, this you. is my world. <laughs> but you know, you, you talk about the sci-fi films. Uh, I grew up with them, and I'm sure you did too. Yeah. There's something about the original Universal horror films, first Dracula, and then right away Frankenstein, and then the Bride of Frankenstein, which is much more of a romp. It really is. The Bride of Frankenstein, you know, yeah. the way the Dr. Pretorius <laughs> says that, you know, the whole thing. It's just so different with the kind of campy score by Franz Wachsman and so forth. 
But, the, you know, the, the budget on the second movie, The Bride, in 35, was huge. Um, and it is a different kind of uh, um, screenplay, certainly, than the original film. The original film has some comedy with Baron von Frankenstein, the old the old British guy who's sure. kind of like straight out of, you know, a, a, a Gunga Din film. Yeah. Hey, I don't know what's going on. You know, who's going to tell me? You know, he's like an old time actor, you know, British actor. But Colin Clive is a genius actor playing Dr. Frankenstein, an absolute genius actor. And he, he dominates the first half of the film with his baritonal voice. But then Karloff shows up. Boris Karloff, who had done countless, you know, uh, silent films and some early talkies, just takes over the role and it's his breakout role and from then on he was world famous a proper englishman henry pratt from northern part of england people right. didn't realize that my god it's just the greatest film <laughs> so uh, what what opportunities have come about from this because you yeah. you, you talk about uh, you know the things that you're able to do with this what's next what what have what have people come to you and said? Hey, you know, Michael, why why don't we why don't we talk about doing this this other thing here? Well, all of my concerti are being done worldwide and getting recorded. Um, the um, my recordings are all out there pretty much, and we get two new two or three new ones a year. Um, my piece Voices uh, is being premiered. It's a full hour and ten minute requiem with. Um, the poetry is Sephardic poems of the Holocaust. Very powerful stuff in multiple languages. French, Italian, Ladino, the, the uh, language of the Mediterranean Jews and uh, Spanish and Hebrew is going to be premiered at Central Synagogue in uh, New York City on November 10. And then out here in L.A. at the Reagan Library with the L.A. Master Chorale conducted by Grant Gershon, the West Coast premiere in March. Um, you know what it is? Uh, I've gotten great currency with Frankenstein all over the world. I've also, uh, you talk about opportunities. Until there are official announcements, I can't say what they are in this broadcast. Sure. But another major, very major top 10 opera house is taking this on with me conducting next year. And then the following season in 24, I'm conducting one of the greatest orchestras in Europe. I mean, it's a very famous one. Again, not announced yet, so I, but we're in contract, you know. So what it does is, you know, when you have something like this that becomes the most popular piece of its kind, you don't realize it's going to happen when you write it. But this has happened, and it gives me great opportunities to conduct. So, for example, or have others conduct, friends of mine. So when, uh, for example, I never thought I would conduct in Milano and have to orchestrate, have to uh, work with an orchestra in Italian, although I speak Italian. So I conducted uh, last year at the Orchestra Sinfonica, Orchestra Sinfonica di Milano Giuseppe Verdi, the oh, wow. <laughs> Milan Symphony Orchestra, in their beautiful uh, Auditorium Cariplo, <laughs> and Largo Gustafa Mahler. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. And I, I conducted two performances of Frankenstein, the movie score with full orchestra there in Milano. And then another performance I never thought would happen, how do I know, was at Teatro Trier, 
which is on the Moselle River, where they have the famous Moselle white wine, not to be missed, oh, right. especially if you're there, right? Yeah. You've had Moselle white wine. So this is Theater Trier, a fabulous opera, opera house with full orchestra in the film. I experienced something in Germany I never experienced before. The, the film takes place in, uh, in a town in Germany. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And in the, there's one filmed uh, uh, musical part where they actually filmed a band doing an umpapa band doing polka dances in the middle of the film. That's the only music that is there, you know. And some of the uh, people who were in the orchestra, the German people, especially older ones, saw the people in the derendels and the German dress doing dancing, and they were so excited. Oh, look at that! <laughs> and they weren't watching the conductor, and they didn't come in on time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get around. It's just great, you know. And um, you know, from England to Austria to Italy and France and Switzerland, and then you just move around doing this. But then you get to know people, and then they, they want to see what else you got. So you do other stuff. So, you know, it's lovely. I mean, the, I, I'm, I'm a lucky boy at this stage to not only do Frankenstein, but also do my new concerti, you know, and uh, my symphonic works my, and uh, song cycles, and choral music, sonatas, and piano music. Lots getting recorded. I believe in streaming. I believe in Spotify and Apple Music and Prime Music and those places. I believe in it. That's our new you know, Tower Records. That's yeah. how we get stuff out. So have you had conversations with anybody about doing film scores? I mean, now that you've now that you've dabbled in that world, you know, has has the bug bitten well, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah. significant there there? Uh, we'll see. I you know, directors it's a director uh, driven world. Um so I'm hoping that some directors slash producers will come out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean Guillermo del Toro is somebody I deeply respect has used music very very beautifully he's somebody right. i would love to meet um i know in his films he's done great things and i know he's an incredible devoted fan of frankenstein to the extent that in his i've seen pictures of you know boris Karloff being made up and he's got it like a, a, a statue in his in his house of that exact scene famous photograph but he's got a real version of it yeah. So he's somebody I'd love to work with. And there are many others. Um, it's got to be their idea. Sure. You know, you you don't go to them. They come to you. So we'll see. But there's nothing wrong with putting it out in the universe and, you know, making making it known that you're interested. We are. And, we are. and it's it's funny because the, the other composers that I know, I, I went to school with Christopher Carter. He studied with, uh, with Shirley Walker. Mm-hmm. And his group, Michael McQuiston, Lolita Romanis, and Christopher, they all are in the Warner Brothers animation world for a lot of the stuff that they composed for for film and TV. But then they also have their own independent uh, orchestral works, stage productions, and stuff that they compose as well. So it seems like it's an it's a natural fit for you know to for people to do both. If you've got composers oh, yeah. that do do one or the other, it's almost like you're you're one armed wallpaper hanger you're not you're not using all of the tools that you have at hand that's right that's right well again i'm a dramatic composer i love movies i know extensive knowledge of film um my mother used to clean the house in brooklyn and we had tvs in the various rooms and she would put on the classic film station whatever it was channel five in those days whatever it was 
and she'd put on the TV, and as she cleaned one room, she'd watch the, the film. Then she'd go to another room, she'd put it on the TV, so she continued to watch the film. I, I want to tell you a very interesting story about myself and Boris Karloff. Okay. When I was 10, Boris Karloff had a show on either NBC or ABC, I forget, called Thriller. It was an anthology show that he came out and introduced. He did an introduction, and then there was a, you know, a show that was a thrilling show or a horror show, much like The Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, one of those kinds of shows. And in those days, you know, Rod Serling came out and he introduced a show. Alfred Hitchcock came out and he introduced the show. Well, Boris Koloff introduced Thriller. So I was, I loved him. I loved him in the early movies, you know. And I wrote to him, 10-year-old Michael, handwritten note, Dear Mr. Karloff, I'm 10 years old. I think you're a thriller. Can I have your autograph? Thank you very much. Sincerely yours, Michael Shapiro. Handwritten. I send it in an envelope to Mr. Boris Karloff, Hollywood, California. Ten-year-old, you know. A month later, I get a handwritten envelope from Van Nuys, California. Michael Shapiro, my address, no zip code, pre-zip code days. Yeah. With a, like a three cent stamp, whatever it was. I open it up. There is a picture, a photograph, signed in ink by Boris Karloff, and a second photograph that he sent me from a box because it was more, it was older and a different paper of himself as the monster. And on the envelope where he's got my name is his home address mm. from Van Nuys, California. So in those days, the post office, bless their heart, knew where these people lived, and they got them the, let the fan mail. And he sent it to me himself, handwritten by himself. Nice. Can you imagine? Nowadays, I, I, that, that kind of thing, I don't think would ever happen. Because everybody's got their publicity, publicity people and their legal people and their managers and, and all that hokum. But that shows you what kind of great gentleman he was. Yeah. To do that for a 10-year-old. There's so, a, it reminds yeah. me of a story. Um, there was a story about Robin Williams mm -hmm. similar to that because somebody apparently had gone to see him at a convention or something and had written to him as a kid. Mm -hmm. And turns out Robin Williams had the letter with him. He's like, oh, wait, no, this is you. And had kept it. And and when they they met again, he said this this really meant a lot, and he he kept he kept all of his letters. It really it really spoke to what kind of person Robin William was. He was a great time. person. I went to Juilliard with him, and and um, and um, but I didn't know him because he was an actor and I was a composer. Yeah. And it was kind of like Juilliard put up these like fences between the various departments. I used to be in the, in, the, in the elevator almost daily with John Houseman. You know, remember oh, him? Oh, I remember he, Houseman. He was, you know, it was in, in the paper chase, John Houseman and so forth. But he was the head of the drama department. But in those days, Juilliard did not tell the composers to write for for the ballet people or for the drama people, which kills me because I would have loved to have done it. Right. You know. Now, it wasn't wasn't Christopher Reeve at Juilliard the same time Robin Williams was? Yeah, and I, I knew him there, yeah. kind of. He also took the Metro North. I saw him on Metro North. When I up to Westchester, I would see him now and then. Yeah, but Robin and Christopher were there together, and Kelly McGillis as well. 
when I was there. But again, we didn't we didn't like talk to them because they were actors. You know, yeah. we were composers or conductors, and it was very segregated. In a yeah, everybody had their own camp. Stupidly. I mean, I love working <laughs> with directors. I love working with actors. I love working with these young artists from the L.A. Opera. My God, what a great staff. The L.A. Opera from the top to the bottom has the most wonderful people. And we're having a great time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Del Toro. Any, any other directors on your, on your list of people that you would like to, uh, to get their attention and, and maybe have a conversation with them? You'll have to re remind me. Um, the conductor, Elliot Goldenthal, wrote, I thought, one of the best scores for Ice, a thrilling movie, which was Interview with the Vampire. Okay, right, yep. And that was directed, I think, by an a Irish director, uh, Neil. I can't remember his name, but he did such a good job. That uh, let me let me look that yeah. up real quick because he's one person that I'm very touched, taken with. Um, You're talking about the in, the original interview. Interview with, with a vampire, not the new one, but the original movie with Tom Cruise, right? And with uh, Brad Pitt and a very 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 young Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> right. who steals uh, every scene that she's in. Neil Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. What a great director he he is. Um, certainly Guillermo del Toro. I'm just trying to think. Uh, well, you know, there's the the people who um, who did. Um, uh, my God, I gotta remember these names. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, Eli, come on, Eli you know Roth. Him? Eli Roth. Um, it was excellent. You know, the, these are the kinds of people that that I, I really respect. Uh, I know my daughter is dedicated to their work, and she goes to see everything. Um. So I think there are opportunities. I think Spielberg also going forward is somebody I, I, I met him about 25 years ago at Tanglewood. Um, and I'd love to connect with him again and some of his colleagues. Um, there's great work to be done in film. Um, you know, film opera is interesting what's happening now too and stage works for Broadway. We're going into a new period where um, fierce artistic intent is really being looked at as economically smart mm -hmm. now we're going to sell out these two performances here at the ace theater we're very close to it at this point and i think there's a reason the reason is not only the it's halloween it's frankenstein the greatest halloween film right scary movie ever made and i can say that because it's true the american film institute has proven this it's a genius movie but it's also my score and it's also the fact that it's the la opera you know top of the line best people in, that you can imagine best singers best musicians and now the most famous score of its kind for this film so in this great great metropolis of los angeles so the monster is coming home it was monster was born here in 1931 by these british director and british actors but it's a universal picture it's coming home. The monster comes home in a theater as historic as the film itself, built by Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, and Edward and the Fairbanks, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Yeah. as the United Artists Theater in the United Artists 
office building that they built to have their own studio because they didn't want to be take, told to do by the other studios. Right. It's now the Ace Hotel and the, and the theater at the Ace Hotel. Still says United Artists downstairs on the marquee. So, you know, a it's a thrill. There. It's great. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, you've got quite a bit uh, going into this weekend. You, you're you're ready to go and eager, and I imagine I imagine some tingles uh, going oh, yeah. into this. So it it, it promises to be a, a an amazing experience for anybody who's going to be there. The show. Let's see. Are you're saying that tickets are still available? Or is it not it's not quite sold out yet. It will be. It will be. But there are still tickets available. So rush, don't wait. <laughs> I must tell people, don't wait. It's a very popular show. All right. And uh, I'd love to see everyone there because remember what Edward Van Sloan says. It might thrill you. <laughs> it might even horrify you. And then he, en he ends by saying, I warned you. Yep. All right, Michael Shapiro, the composer, Frankenstein with live orchestra going on this weekend at the L.A. Opera. Uh, you can find out more about his career at michaelshapiro.com. He's also got a YouTube channel and an Instagram account. We will link to all of those in our notes. Uh, Maestro, is, is, it, is it appropriate to address you as such? I think if you reach a certain stage in your life, you yeah. can be called that. All right. Well, <laughs> we do appreciate you coming on and talking to us this hour. Uh, what is what is the next thing that you can announce that you're doing? Where will people find? Oh yeah. You? Now this is in New York City, uh, at Central Synagogue on which is the most magnificent spa space, twelve hundred seats. On November ten, is the premiere of my Voices, which is my Requiem. It's my Mrs. Solemnus. It's my Verdi Requiem. It's my big piece for chorus, for soloist, chorus, and orchestra, okay. which will be premiered and will also be on the Central Synagogue YouTube channel and Facebook channel for the next year. So if you can't see it live from Central Synagogue on November 10 at 7.30 Eastern time, you can certainly watch it at any point at the Central Synagogue YouTube channel. Uh, that's the next big thing. Um, I can also announce if you're in the Indianapolis area in March, uh, Frankenstein the movie score is being done by the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. If you happen to live in Portugal, in Porto, uh, <laughs> the greatest ensemble in my in my mind in all of Portugal is the re remix or remix ensemble, the Casa da Musica, is pre presenting the Portuguese premiere of Frankenstein the movie score conducted by the great Brad Lubman, an American conductor of great fame and talent. That's in, on, in February, early February. And uh, under the Brooklyn Bridge in April will be the premiere of uh, and recording of my string quartet and my piano quintet by the Argus String Quartet. And the uh, piano quintet it will be joined by Stephen Beck, who is of the Knights and the Brooklyn and the New York Philharmonic, the greatest keyboardist nice. I know. So that's just a sampling. A lot more going on. All right. The Sometimes website's the best place to find things. All right. So that is MichaelShapiro.com. And uh, break a leg this weekend. Have fun. Thank I'm you. sure it'll be a, a, an amazing experience for everybody involved. 
And uh, we're definitely, uh, definitely should have uh, further conversations. I think uh, I would still look forward to it. All right. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you all of you for being here as we roll closer to our 500th episode coming in December. Uh, In the meantime, you can check out any of the rest of our uh, shows here. Coming up Monday night, we are going to be talking about the finale, Jody's last episode of Doctor Who. Mr. Harvey and I are going to have that conversation over on the H2O podcast, 9 p.m. Eastern. And, of course, this weekend, all the latest uh, headlines for the week at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central for Good Morning Multiverse. And uh, coming up on this show... Uh, The rest of the week, we've got quite a bit. Michael Gallagher will be here on Monday. Harry Glorickian will be here on Wednesday to talk about AI and tech and how it makes you live better. I'm not sure where where that conversation is going to go, but uh, check us out there. And then, of course, as always, we do want you uh, to connect with us on various different platforms. We're on all these different social media platforms all these uh, video platforms, we're climbing to 100 on Rumble. We need to get there so we can get uh, get our live stream over there. And that's going to do it for us uh, today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, share the link. And remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 